Hey everybody, it's Rob Liefeld and I'm welcoming you to another edition of Observations. Uh, I think this is episode six of Observations. Uh, thanks for hopping on again with me for another discussion of comic books, past, present, future. What happened yesterday, how it impacts comics of today. Thank you guys for all the feedback you continue to give me uh, on, on these shows as they load. I appreciate all the reviews. All the input I read your comments on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and uh, the stuff that you leave on on the iTunes Spotify all the different platforms we have I cannot tell you how much I absolutely appreciate all the feedback I started this podcast to express my love of comics from you know my youth charting all the way up to where we are right now I have made a lot of comic books. I have produced over 4,500, 4,500 pages of comic books myself from my pencil, pen, ink stories. This is over a uh, 33, 34 year career and they are my passion. I have published far more comics than that, but, but me, my personal craft that I've dr drawn, illustrated, the stories I've told, I continue to build on. I, I uh, have have plans to make a lot more comic books ahead. That forty five hundred number, that is more than most, and less than some. Uh, my buddy Eric Larson, who does the Savage Dragon, previously did Spider Man for Marvel. He's probably in the eight thousand five hundred range. He is easily double what I have produced, and then. Compared to some of my other peers, my page number is double to what they've produced in terms of actually penciling and inking your own work. Eric's done a 300, no, Eric has done 250 consecutive issues of Savage Dragon, which is, whoa, it's massive. That is so many pages. And uh, so, so again, that that's a constant stream of pages for, for since 1992. And... He's done stuff before then, during then, additional jobs. So, again, my passion is comics, but it is uh, a thrill to talk about comics. And also, I believe comics impact the culture. Today, we are going to discuss the greatest rivalry in comic books, as far as I'm concerned. You guys love rivalries. I love rivalries. Rivalries are exciting. Uh, there, there's, there's sides chosen, favorites picked. And along the way, rivalries take different shapes and forms. One guy seemingly has the leg up. The other guy comes along and, you know, upends him. And then you're, uh, you've got the series of backs and forth. Uh, when I was a kid, Showtime Lakers, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, James Worthy, up against Larry Bird, you know, Kevin McHale, Dennis Johnson, all of these crazy... Uh, rivalries that, that, that we've enjoyed along the way in sports. Uh, you could say this last 20 years belongs to Tom Brady. Who's going to argue that? He's the winningest. Before that, I would have said there was an entire era that belonged to Joe Montana, and then there are Cowboys fans who would argue and tell you that there's no way that could possibly be true because, you know, they were the greatest. So the, the, these rivalries whether it's baseball, basketball, football, music. Look at the Beatles. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Uh, just a few months back, 
Mick Jagger came out, took a shot, said, well, the Beatles, Beatles broke up so long ago and we've continued to make all these albums and they, not, they never got to tour stadiums and have the kind of concerts that we have. And, you know, he, th he, he said, I think the Stones, I think the Rolling Stones are the biggest band ever, not the Beatles. So you've always got rivalries. And in comic books, there is a rivalry that was born in uh, 1975, 76, that uh, raged on for the better part of 20 years, but for about a 10 to 12 year period, the peak of the Bronze Age, these two gentlemen defined popular superhero comic books. And that is John Byrne and George Perez. John Byrne, uh, his claim to fame, his big titles that, that, that the, the big notches on his belt are his X-Men run, historic, we've discussed it, the single best X-Men run, one of the single best runs in comic books of all time, transformational. He then went on to do like a five-year Fantastic Four run that is equal to, in my mind, if slightly less than because you have to give Jack Kirby the Stan and Jack the originality that they that they built those roads that John would then travel on. But he traveled on them so well. He mastered it. And his Fantastic Four run is second to, equal to, the classic Kirby run. The thing you're going to find with both John and George is some of the stuff they left behind has never been better than since they left it behind. So you've got Fantastic Four and X-Men would be the big two uh, contributions from John Byrne. Along the way, he did an amazing spin-your-head, couldn't-believe-it-was-over-as-fast-as-it-started Captain America run in the early 80s. Somehow there was a dispute with the editor-in-chief that ended that run cold. But it was uh, epic. Eight to ten issues, Union Jack, Baron Blood, Mr. Hyde, Batstrock, the Lipa, um, so, uh, the, 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 the historic issue where Cap ran for president or was convinced to try and become a candidate. It's uh, just amazing stuff. He also did a great run of Marvel Team-Up. So then he went to DC Comics and did Superman making the cover of Time Magazine and being on the Today Show to promote it. So grabbing the biggest of possible spotlights during that time. George Perez, on the other hand, would the Teen Titans, in any capacity that you've seen them in the last 25 years, on Teen Titans Go, which my kids grew up watching on Cartoon Network, the Teen Titans Go, that, that show, that one, oh, so good, so good. All of that is a product of George Perez and his phenomenal run. And the Titan show right now that's on the DCU with uh, Minka Kelly as Dove and and Alan Richardson is Hawk, even though George never depicted them. But that show also has Changeling, Robin, uh, you know, it's had Aqualad, Wonder Girl, Deathstroke. That is all a product of George Perez and the impact that he brought to comic books. So Titans would be number one on his, similar to John Byrne having X-Men on his, kind of number one. And then below where John has Fantastic Four, I, I would give... I'll give the Avengers to George. He revisited the Avengers and established himself as the pre-premier Avengers artist. In addition to the Avengers, he uh, he had the Justice League, a brief run, but one that is viewed as like everybody's favorite Justice League run. 
like and it was even spotty it wasn't like consecutive he'd do like a couple issues here a couple issues there but it was a period in the early 80s and it is everyone's favorite justice league run i mean especially to to the kids of my generation the guys that i meet the guys that i talk to and and we'll get more into this there's a reason that george was the guy invited to do justice league avengers the giant multi character big time dc marvel crossover it's because even with just a few issues of the justice league he was synonymous with the justice league at dc and synonymous with the avengers over at marvel so you got the titans and the avengers and then with john byrne you've got x-men and fantastic four and then john actually did a decent amount of avengers in this five-year period where the avengers was right behind the x-men as the top book at marvel they literally were kind of switching off. John would do several issues. George would do several issues. But this wasn't the only time they'd share uh, artistic chores, artistic responsibilities on a shared story. There was a best-selling book by Marvel called Marvel 2-in-1. You have to understand, going into the Bronze Age, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four were their top two sellers. Okay, And then after that would be Hulk. But on the charts, the Spider-Man books and the Fantastic Four books and Marvel 2-in-1 always featured the Thing, the rock, orange rock character from the Fantastic Four in a capacity where he would guest star with one of Marvel's most popular heroes. So every month it would be the Thing and Captain America, the Thing and the Falcon, the Thing and Thor, the Thing and Captain Marvel, okay? Same with Marvel Team-Up, which had Spider-Man in the same capacity. We've discussed this before, Spider-Man and... Prince Namor, Spider-Man and Warlock, Spider-Man and Hulk, Spider-Man and the X-Men, Wolverine. So the Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four franchises were their two premier spotlight franchises where they would just showcase them in a greater capacity because they were their two best-selling characters. The Thing got his own cartoon. People forget this. Not only did the Fantastic Four get a cartoon on, on NBC when I was a kid with Herbie the Robot where they took out the Human Torch, for all sorts of reasons I've heard. They didn't want kids lighting themselves on fire. Uh, the, 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 the Marvel chose to not depict the, the torch in that manner. The network didn't want uh, a flaming guy. It doesn't make sense because the Human Torch was around in the 60s. Maybe there was new standards and practices. But anyway, the Fantastic Four on NBC was the thing, Mis- Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, and Herbie the Robot. Weird, but fun, good stories. Inhumans, Doctor Doom, there's some good stuff in there. But later on, they gave The Thing his own cartoon where he was a teenager with a ring that when he activated it, all the rocks came to him. So it was a really different take on Ben Grimm. But you have to understand, Spider-Man and The Amazing Friends had a cartoon, and then The Fantastic Four had a cartoon, and then The Thing had a cartoon. So again, what I'm getting back to is Fantastic Four and Spider-Man were huge focuses for Marvel. So if John Byrne and George Perez are sharing duties on a saga that involved either of them, that was because they were top sellers and those guys were really always put on the best-selling titles. They both, again, like I said, had had uh, runs that are not as famous as their most famous runs. Like with John Byrne, X-Men, Fantastic Four, he also did Iron Fist. He did some Power Man Iron Fist. Uh, he did a lot of just solo Iron Fist. But for George, the equivalent of that would be most people don't know that George launched an Inhuman series for Marvel in 1975. He did the first several issues, five, six issues. And then he transitioned off of that. And prior to John taking over 
the Fantastic Four for five years, once again, he and George would share storylines. John Byrne would do a storyline. George Perez would do a storyline. They were always switching it up in regards to uh, sharing a lot of these this Fantastic Four real estate, whether it would be The Thing, his adventures in Marvel 2 and one or the absolute Fantastic Four book proper. So these two guys enter the scene at the same time. They enter the scene at the same time. John Byrne, hotshot Canadian guy. They both take very different paths getting there. He, John had been doing a lot of Charlton comics. He did Space 1999, adaptation of a sci-fi TV show at the time. He did his own book called Doomsday. And uh, John was extremely, again, his, 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 his style was extremely noticeable. He had an immediate impact, kind of a manga, anime, Japanese cartoon faces on these kind of uh, more a more watered down version of Neil Adams, who was this master il illustrator. But all these different little signature traits were 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 identifiable in John's work. As you'll see over time, everybody's always taken from somebody else. It's just like music. Somebody gets a riff. Somebody borrows that riff. Somebody adds some drums to it. Somebody adds a synthesizer. You know, it's just it's everyone always builds on something that they like to try and make it into something familiar but new. So then you've got George Perez, who was an assistant to a very prominent penciler named Rich Buckler. Rich had taken over the Fantastic Four. He had done Deathlock. He did issues of, of uh, Power Man. He did covers for all manner. He did uh, issues of the Avengers. He was always in demand, always working. And George was an assistant of his and came up as an assistant. I don't know, doing backgrounds, helping out with figures. But he was always uh, generously, he, he always generously said that he came in under Rich Buckler, and Rich Buckler was always generous in saying George kind of learned at my studio. So George started getting more and more assignments. He did short stories, he did uh, backup stories, he did uh, stories in Marvel's magazine line, which were black and white. And the, the, his stuff was kind of rough. They didn't give him the best finishers, the best inkers. So he was definitely a kid kind of earning his way, but he was coming on fast. And again, within two years of kind of coming up the system, he became the uh, dedicated penciler to the Avengers, which is a flagship Marvel title. And so at that time, John is coming on strong, and John is doing multiple issues of a book called The Champions, which is... Uh, a book that a team book that ultimately didn't last, but had Hercules, Black Widow, Ghost Rider, two X-Men characters, Angel, Iceman, in the mix, and John was doing Iron Fist and doing Marvel Team Up. Most high-profile profile of those at that time was Marvel Marvel Team Up, with all the different Spider-Man guest stars, and, and it was an exciting book. I mean, Spider-Man, Thor, Spider-Man, Havok, Spider-Man, Man Thing, Spider-Man, Warlock, Spider-Man, Hulk. He was doing some really big stories and those were top sellers and then John was starting to like I said draw Fantastic Four issues and George was drawing Fantastic Four issues and George would do a series of issues and then John would do a series of issues Joe Sinnott was the dedicated inker of the Fantastic Four since you know early on in Jack Kirby's run and he was the constant of that book so if you penciled it Joe Sinnott Joe Sinnott would throw down his beautiful inks. He is, when I mentioned Terry Austin, Joe Sennott was the inker before Terry. The clean line, crispy, 
just such a polished finish. And he kind of gave the book a look, no matter who was doing it. John Buscema, Rich Buckler, George Perez, John Byrne. Then John pivots during the X-Men. He starts doing issues of the Avengers. So you're getting these killer storylines. There's one called Wondegore Mountain, which the Avengers uh, travel to this legendary mountain. They battle this uh, w- wizard called Modred, who turns on them, transforms Scarlet Witch. It's 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 a big deal to everybody who was reading that at the time. It, it dabbles in some high evolutionary, some inhuman stuff, some X-Men, some mutant stuff. These are big storylines. These are big deals. He does a solo Hawkeye issue. He is key in uh, in producing um, this seminal issue where the Avengers uh, lineup gets gets changed around. And it's uh, it's it's really exciting in 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 that you were so happy as a kid of this age if you saw either John Byrne or George Perez. And now I'll tell you why. Both guys excelled at outstanding figure work. They both excelled at doing dynamic figure drawings and renderings and detailed backgrounds. Uh, George Perez was famous for packing as many characters as he possibly could in each panel and frame. And also, if there was a fight on the street, even George made fun of this himself, like made light of it, there was Perez rubble. He didn't draw just a few rocks. He filled the streets with rock, rocks and shrapnel and uh, steel girders and smoke and debris. He would just fill that page up. John Byrne would do the same thing. It, it, it really felt like these guys were aware of each other. They both came up, weaned on Jack Kirby, John Buscema books, and the Kirby was prominent in George early and prominent in John later on. It's weird, but John had this Neil Adams thing very early on, mostly evident in his work on the X-Men. And George had this Jack Kirby power that he had evident in his work early on. And so it was really uh, a thrill whenever either of these guys came on because you knew you were going to get tons of detail and you knew you were going to get... you know, great figure work, great dynamic, inner dynamics, uh, just guys talking, they made look interesting. They were very invested in bringing very attractive figures. Both men drew very attractive faces and figures and having their inner personal dynamics, whether it's a walk in the garden, there's one great, uh, there's one absolutely fantastic issue that George Perez did where Captain America and, uh, and, and Ms. Marvel, who you would later know as Captain Marvel, were, uh, were walking around the grounds of the Avengers Mansion. And during that period where they are walking around the grounds of the Avengers Mansion, there's kids throwing snowballs at them, like over the fence. And Cap throws his shield casually like without even breaking stride and knocks these kids off the fence and the shield returns to his hand and it's it's fantastic it's it's absolutely fabulous as as it's effortless but it is so well drawn so handsomely portrayed and uh cap and ms marvel look gorgeous powerful detailed the environment is detailed 
and the flow of the storytelling is fantastic. Both men are great storytellers, top-notch storytellers, master storytellers. The one edge I would give to George, a better page designer. M took more interest in crafting interesting, unique page designs where John was very much a solid, classic storyteller uh, in the vein of, a, of, 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 of the greats like Buscema and Kirby. He could just give you that. If he wanted to work just an entire issue of four-panel grids, it, it, it would dazzle you. He would take every advantage of all of the uh, tricks and the basics of using just four panels or a six-panel grid. George liked to break it up. George also infamously, infamously starts creating literally 14 panel pages 10 to 14 panel pages and the page does not seem cramped and you're like but how could that possibly be how does the page not seem cramped if if uh if it's got that many panels on it but again this speaks to george's talent in crafting these really interesting page designs and having your eye follow the panels all throughout the page whether they were on grid or on a specific design that George would create later on, especially when he would have people flying fast or running fast, George Perez would stack panels together in a way that would make your eye cascade across them in a fast manner and then slow them down. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy was a master page designer. He, he definitely gets the edge in that capacity. But uh, when, I, when I was talking about the Marvel 2-in-1 uh, uh, gig that, that, that they shared, that is a famous 1979 storyline called Project Pegasus. And it is a six-issue storyline. And, and if you're a George Perez and John Byrne fan, and I, I'm going to establish right now, starting in 1975, if you were into comics, those guys' names were randomly in all sorts of comics. George Perez would do an issue of Power Man. You know, Luke Cage Power Man. And you go, hey, wait, what's he doing this? He, where Power Man battles a super wrestler named X. X on his forehead. Then you'd pick up an issue of Ghost Rider and John Byrne was drawing it or an issue of Daredevil. And you're like, wait, John Byrne is doing a filling issue on Daredevil? All pre-Frank Miller stuff. But George and John, again, locked into being kind of the Avengers guys, the Fantastic Four guy, and the Uncanny X-Men guy. And Uncanny X-Men was strictly John's domain. George would do covers on that book. Uh, quite, quite a few really great co covers, by the way. But... John had the interiors of Uncanny X-Men on lockdown and a lot of the language that he would create would be evident there. Uh, so I, I told you about George's page designs and how specific they were in that he would start crafting these multi-panel pages where you've got all these different stacks of panels, whether vertical or horizontal, in order to speed up the process of whatever you're experiencing on that page maybe the flash running in super speed and so the panels get stacked uh vertically you know closer together uh that was his forte just again i would give that to him what john did better than john was draw big stuff and if you like comic books you never minded a big double page splash or splash page and on the x-men Byrne really started to uh, 
master. Uh, for instance, during the Savage Land saga that, that, that John Byrne would do, that's somewhere in the X-Men 114s to 118, uh, they encounter Sauron, who's a giant pterodactyl man. Frightening looking. Neil Adams established his look. John Byrne took it even a step further, making him even creepier and cooler. But uh, you'd get a splash page of Sauron overlooking a downshot, a tight downshot of Sauron standing in the lake with with Storm in his clutches and the team surrounding him. And then, boom, you'd open it up. Page two and three is a giant shot of Wolverine leaping out, slashing his claws across Sauron, who's got his arms and wings fanned out like he's you know, trying to duck Wolverine's swing, but it's this giant figure swinging against this giant figure, and often John would do the big stuff really well, like that, a giant splash page where you'd reveal that the guy that has been manipulating the X-Men is Magneto, and he steps out behind the shadows, knuckles on the table, body leaning forward, steely eyes, shadow from the Magneto's helmet, John Byrne, just full fake, full thigh you know thigh to head amazing amazing tight shot these tight crops and john again in the, again the savage land he'd do a full splash page of all the x-men climbing up the the snowy overpass and then page two and three boom giant overlook of the entire base and the x-men are all positioned around the cliff looking down at this amazing, amazing technologically detailed uh, base in the middle of this Antarctic, you know, uh, background. And it was just, whoa, so impressive. And, and, and he would definitely take that to the next level when he took over the Fantastic Four and big, giant Galactus falling into a building. Terax, who's a herald of Galaxus, a guy who rides a giant rock, hovering above the thing as he struck him down and the thing is you know coiled up in pain just amazing shots big shots were john's forte he mastered those small stuff george mastered those he wanted to draw 50 characters in a in a panel uh in in one page he'd do it he'd do it effortlessly they both had their areas of expertise but on project pegasus john byrne would do the first three chapters the Thing arrives at this base called Project Pegasus, and he encounters Quasar in one issue, Deathlock in the next, and Giant Man in the third chapter. And then, you know, you go the next month, the fourth month of this ongoing saga, and George Perez has arrived to do the last three. He does the Thunder chapter, the Wondar chapter, and Aquarian. So they both did 66 pages of this, you know, massive epic uh so 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 they both did you know equal parts of this 120 plus page saga and i have the trade paperback right here in my hands i love it i refer to it often it's magnificent it it showcases both men's strengths you you they complement each other they never even though they had different styles it wasn't like whoa like a complete head turn like a scritchy scratchy uh, Don Heck, Frank Springer, Frank Robbins guy, as opposed to a Neil Adams or John Buscema guy. All got all, all these guys are great, but but definitely you got polished and then kind of sketchy. With these guys, they were both polished. So whenever you got a John Byrne job or a George Perez job, you were like, whoa, I can't believe how great these look. Again, their attention to detail was what defined them.
and they pushed each other. And you have to believe they knew they pushed each other. I'll emphasize later on how they would tell me they pushed each other. And, and, and evidence of, you know, interviews where they would reference each other during this time. Because as I've said before, this was also the dawn of the comic book interview magazine. Comics Journal, Amazing Hero, uh, among the biggest of these magazines that would give 30 pages to these artists picking their brains, talking about how they approach this job, that job. What was the environment like? What were they intending to do here? It, uh, both men also got art of books. Art of John Byrne, art of George Perez. More art of John Byrne, more art of George Perez. I mean, the, 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 the culture of comic books loved these guys, worshiped these guys. These were the guys, and the reason we're even doing this podcast is when you'd walk in to the comic store circa 1980 when direct market started taking off. So these guys have both been doing this for five years on the newsstand, and now comic book stores are popping up. They're popping up in my neighborhood. They're popping up in your neighborhood. And you're going in, and so now you're with like-minded people. You're in the clubhouse. You're lining up, and maybe your George Perez book is on the top of your stack, and the guy behind you has got you know, John Byrne books and says to you, so uh, you a, you a Perez guy? And you go, well, yeah. Yeah, he, he's my favorite. Oh, man, John Byrne's so much better. Oh, I, you know, George is okay, but Byrne's better than burns better and then you go no 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 Perez is way better and and these are conversations and arguments that were had on site at all manner of comic stores and you guys are going to write to me and tell me about your versions of these and this would continue well into my age because this is the birth of rivalries that would really uh, haunt the comics industry we would we competitive guy after competitive guy would enter enter this field looking to best the other guy and conversations like that in the comic store I'm not sure that they've ever stopped and I know when I encountered my first comic store at the beginning of these comic stores when when you would see a listing when I'm looking for old comics old bookstores when I was a kid to see if I could bike right over there I'd see comic book stores a comic book store listing what and oh my gosh it's a dedicated comic book store that only sells comic books so now I'm going beyond my spinner racks of the liquor store and the 7-Eleven and the stop and go and the grocery store and now I'm going to Adventureland or you know uh, Comic Castle or Fantasy Illustrated and getting just nothing but comic books and that's where Comic book stores were born, the direct market was born, and these arguments started to take flight because, again, these are commercial clubhouses. And the guys who ran them had their favorites, too. Oh, man, I, I know that guy next to you is telling you you love John Byrne. He loves John Byrne, but I'm with you, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm into press. And uh, it's the kind of stuff you'd, you'd hear. And, and, and literally, you know, I'd, I'd meet guys at conventions in the early 80s. Los Angeles had a convention once a month. <laughs> I'd go up there, I'd meet different artists and meet new, new people, you know, that, that drew and created comics, teenagers like myself, and we would immediately begun, begin discussing comic book artists, and one guy would be like, yeah, I'm all about John Byrne, man. Don't even get me started on George Press. And, at the, you know, depending on the time, uh, they, were, they were my 1A and my 1B. But this is what people, this is what they did to people. You picked a side. You picked a side. This guy's better than this because they both trafficked in team books. Avengers, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Titans, Justice League, Champions, Inhumans. I mean, these guys loved team books and all of the various dynamics that they provided. And neither guy really 
did solo titles other than Burns Iron Fist stuff until later in their careers. But they they built their careers, their resumes on the back of team books. So Project Pegasus, three three John Byrne chapters, three George Perez chapters, and it was like the greatest superhero artists of their age teamed up to give this killer cosmic saga with you know, Quasar never looked better than when John Byrne drew him, ditto with Deathlock, Thundra, Wondar, and Aquarian. Two of those are kind of unknown characters, but man, did George pull it off. And at the end, as, as every chapter built, you know, Quasar is in the Deathlock chapter, Deathlock and Quasar are in the Giant Man chapter, they're all in the Thunder chapter, they're all in the Wondar chapter. Each chapter of Marvel 2 and 1, all the if a character was introduced, they came into the next book as well. They may not have been the spotlight character, but they were part of this. So at the end, you had these team of superheroes. Again, John Byrne, George Perez, Project Pegasus, really the flex of both of their commercial appeal that made this a book that people had to have that summer. Had to have. Huge book, huge appeal. George would return to close out the Avengers, do this incredible run of Avengers stories. And you think, man, George is back. He's... He's dedicated. He's uh, he even did this X Men annual that I can tell you from Chris Claremont and Terry Austin both wrote excerpts about working with George. The only time they would both work with George on this X Men annual, George that 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 was like a forty eight page masterpiece uh, that would take George away for a while. But coming out of that, he re engaged with the Avengers in nineteen eighty and Red Ronan. Taskmaster, he introduced Taskmaster, which is a huge, awesome, amazing character that impacted like our 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 cultural consciousness the minute it hit. Like Taskmaster, he can duplicate all your powers. Is there a cooler character? Oh my gosh. Skull mask, swords, shields, buccaneer boots, buccaneer gloves. Awesome. Amazing. He ended the Avengers re- leading right up to their big two hundredth issue anniversary. And hung around for two more issues and was gone. And no more John Byrne on the book, no more George Perez. The back and forth that had been going on for five and a half years. John does a run, George does a run, John does a run, George does a run. That was over. Like the Avengers were never as good as they were during that period ever, ever again. They went on this extended run of kind of fill in artist after fill in artist. Gene Colan, Don Heck, Greg LaRoque, uh, you know, um, Bob Hall, just, and, and the premier artists never, ever entered the fray ever again. I mean, literally for a decade, it was the domain of either fresh, new kind of up-and-comers who'd hang around, or kind of journeymen like Al Milgram. And then a very much older John Buscema who came back in the late 80s to do a run. But the lineups weren't the same. And if you talk to, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm part of a bunch of these different Facebook groups that celebrate, you know, this age of comics and guys who are my ilk, thousands of different members. And we all kind of agree to a person. The Avengers from basically issue 141 to 202. That stretch is perfection. It is one of the best rides we ever had. And the defining memory we have of it is that John Byrne did a whole bunch of issues and George Perez did a whole bunch of issues. But what happens to George Perez? What happens to him? 
Well, George Perez quit Marvel Comics. And I'm going to tell you right now, looking back, uh, best movie ever made, undeniably the best movie ever made. The Uncanny X-Men are the biggest book in, in the comic book universe now. They are Marvel's priority. Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Banshee, Phoenix, Cyclops, they have blown up. They are just igniting comics fandom. The X-Men are starting to guest star more. I mean, all the tenets of, of, of popularity are evident with the X-Men characters. And they are a youthful group of colorful, you know, powerful teenage mutants. Wolverine's not a teenager, but they're youthful. They're in their 20s. You're, you, teenagers. Colossus is supposed to be 19. Kitty Pride, 15. You know, the, the whole vibe here is that they're younger. Nobody is conceivably in their late 20s at this time. So it's a, a very youthful book. They're not the adults in the room. They're not Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. So George Perez leaves, and it's announced, again, in these now comic book news magazines. Comics Journal, Comics Interview, Amazing Heroes. These are the big comic magazines that George Perez has left to go to DC Comics. Well, let me tell you something. DC Comics was stagnant. They had a great group of illustrators, Irv Novick, Dick Dillon, Jim Aparo, you know, Carmen Infantino, guys who was who were doing very fine comics, but they did not have the flair or the flash that Marvel did with its John Byrne, Frank Miller, Walt Simonson, Howard Chaikin, George Perez. They just, it, that, that, that was not evident uh, in these comics at DC. It was, it was, it was, those comics seemed to be, uh, still hanging on to kind of an older, older, a more old-fashioned style of storytelling and illustration where Marvel, again, had that Jack Kirby punch. These guys came up, rock'em, sock'em, dynamic figure work, incredible, innovative storytelling, especially the Frank Miller stuff that we've covered back in episode two. And George Leaves. One of the most important artists at Marvel is now going to go plant his flag at DC Comics. This shook the comics industry. He's going to go do the new Teen Titans, which hasn't seen a successful run on it in ever. In ever. It was never a top-selling book. But they're not just going to do your mom and dad's Teen Titans. It's going to have Robin and Wonder Girl and Kid Flash. But it's also going to feature three brand new characters. And when I see these sketches of these three brand new characters, Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven, and then a new look for a kind of a unknown character who had a smaller profile amongst Doom Patrol and Titans in the past, but never a featured player. He was called Beast Boy in the, in the past. Gar Logan was now the Changeling. Better name, Changeling. But uh, Starfire is this uh, buxom, big oval eyes, no pupils, um, orange-skinned alien who had these blasts out of her hand, wore very skimpy clothing, um, super sexy. George was very much, I told you, both George and John would draw very attractive um, male and female. And I, I give George, John a slight edge in that he did more and more often his Sue Storm, his Jean Grey, his Aurora slash Storm from the X-Men, Scarlet Witch. These are he would he he really really knew how to deliver just beautiful beautiful um females that comic fans went absolutely 
absolutely nuts over. And George shows up, George Perez shows up, and now you've got Kitty Pride. And Kitty Pride, I mean, I'm sorry, forgive me, not Kitty Pride, Coriander, K and K, Coriander, Starfire. And she very much looked like she was from the Storm school of, of female appeal. She very much was an echo, a compliment to Storm over on the X-Men. Now, John Byrne didn't design Storm. That would be Dave Cockrum. But you've got the ovals, the big hair, sexy costume, flying, blast in her hands. She very much, you went, oh, huh. So this is kind of like the Titans version of Storm. And there's no heresy in saying that. In 1980, 81, that's what you said. Then you have Cyborg. Big uh, steel guy. Uh, a, a black teenager transformed into this cybernetic hero. And you're like, well, he's got coils on his arms and he has more kind of gizmos, but silver, okay, that's kind of the Colossus. He's the tallest, biggest, strongest guy in the team. And always, I, I've emphasized in past episodes how the strong man was always a focus of every comic. Hulk, Power Man, The Thing, Thor, Colossus was designed to be the breakout star of X-Men. It turned out to be Wolverine, but, you know, not without trying. They put Colossus front and center. So, Cyborg is kind of your Colossus entry. Then you've got Raven, and she is very deliberately a Phoenix, Dark Phoenix uh, Echo. Uh, has dark mystical powers. Uh, just, just struggling with the dark side, doesn't know the ranger for true powers, uh, has, has, has in this case, an origin to kind of a dark lord, but she's very much troubled, and you never know when she's going to turn on the team, and she eventually does turn on the team, way down the line. But Raven, in the TV show, she's much younger. Raven was also very sexy when she was first introduced, um, a very, you know, voluptuous form, much like Starfire, she had Wonder Girl, Starfire, and Raven. They stacked the deck. They stacked the deck with um, attractive women to complement Robin, Kid Flash, Cyborg, and Changeling. And Titans explodes off the page. It is Marv Wolfman and George Perez doing their counterpoint of what has happened with the X-Men over the last four or five years. Except John Byrne has left the X-Men. John Byrne, after doing umpteen issues of the X-Men and making it the hottest thing on the comic scene wants to write and draw his own adventures going forward breaks free from Chris Claremont Marvel Jim Shooter gives him the Fantastic Four and he puts it full throttle and takes the Fantastic Four through the roof writes pencils inks every issue going forward in 1981 and so George enters the Titans as John leaves the X-Men and Dave Cockrum comes back to do the X-Men, but he's in the shadow of John Byrne, who everyone thinks is the best thing ever. Dave was a capable, amazing uh, replacement to John, especially considered that John replaced him. But his he, Dave was also older than both these gentlemen, and you cannot understand the fire that George had. George is also doing issues of Justice League at this time. And... You know, the story goes that George only crossed the street to go do the Justice League. 
and then uh, that changed plans and the Titans became priority uh, and and so you know he couldn't do both as the Titans blew up took off and became more of a priority becoming DC's number one selling book with with good reason George poured everything he had in this everything first of all the chemistry of these characters was great they looked great together we talk all the time about visuals comics are about visuals cyborg starfire raven changeling wonder girl robin looked great together on a page any any consortium of pages they looked great it was boom the lineup that clicked the lineup the titans had never had and it was game set match with marvel's x-men they were seen as dc's x-men by the retailers, by the fans, and people ate it up. Basically, on the back of George's fantastic talent. No slight to Marv here. He was amazing writer. But comics are visual, and what drew Marv's other books at DC did not have this kind of success because they didn't share the component of George Perez. And when George was blowing up on the Justice League, doing a handful of issues here and there, that was under different writers, Jerry Conway, um, d- different guys... It wasn't Marv. So as, as much as I love Marv, and he is a co-father to all these Titans characters, the show, and you show up for the show, the show was George. I believe George crossed the street for a number of reasons. He saw that John had become the favorite son of Marvel. Despite all of his contributions, John was the favorite son of Marvel Comics. And was, uh, I think when John's work came in, everybody oohed and awed, and I think they looked past George despite his best efforts. I think they knew George was maybe the number two solid guy, but he was also at this point trying to compete with the success of Frank Miller, who was taking comics by storm in 1980. Walt Simon was coming on strong, pinch hitting on all sorts of titles, uh, doing a stunt. Uh, uh, you'd be like, well, wait, Battlestar Galactica doesn't matter. You'd be surprised. He did some Battlestar Galactica. He did about 10, 12 Battlestar Galactica issues, proving his worth on a licensed book that, you know, frankly, shouldn't have been as good as it was, but it was because of Walt Simonson. So you got Frank Miller on Daredevil, Walt Simonson coming on strong, John Byrne owning the joint, just owning the joint. As, as he exits the X-Men and takes over... Fantastic Four, he's doing this Captain America run as well. And and I just I just know, especially, again, the fandom of the time, the conventions, uh, the comic stores, the interview magazines. John was blowing up. John was a darling. And I think George was like, I won't be overlooked. You know, I'm not going to be diminished in this guy's shadow. And by crossing the street, George Perez became bigger than he ever was at Marvel. He became the most important person at DC Comics by a long shot and he immediately started doing covers for all their comic books. He did covers for Wonder Woman. He did covers for World's Finest which teamed up Superman and Batman. He did covers for The Flash. He did backup stories in The Flash while he was doing Justice League and The Titans. You think this guy was hungry? He was so hungry to prove that he was a dominant player and that all of the tricks and the lessons and the blood, sweat, and tears that he gave to Marvel were now going to pay off in spades at DC. He did covers for Dial H for Hero, which was a book that DC had had renewed. Um, And I bought them for the George covers. I bought the Wonder Woman's for the George covers. Anything George touched, I picked up. He did a run of Green Lantern covers that are 
oh my gosh, you, you should have just bought them for the George covers. The interiors were great, but George's covers, he was, I, I would, as a fan, go, what happened to this guy? His output is just enormous. And I think George had the eye of the tiger. He's like, I will not be denied. I am going to get mine. And get mine is a big deal. Get mine is why players, you know, shift their focus. To me, George going to Marvel was LeBron James leaving Cleveland and going to Miami, where the amplification, the the enhancement of the LeBron legend, you know, blows up. I'm taking my talents to South Beach. LeBron famously says as he goes to Miami, George took his talents to DC Comics and was seeing John Byrne in the finals every year is basically how you look at it, okay? I mean, it's been pointed out to me that this era that I'm discussing, the Bronze Age of Comics, is also, if you're prone to listen to a certain era of music uh, on Pandora or on iTunes, it's called Yacht Rock, right? Yacht Rock. Yacht Rock. It's what you listen to when your parents are rocking out with their shirts off uh, on the lake, you know? And uh, whether it's in the Ozarks or Lake Havasu or Lake Powell, they're blasting those speakers. And what they're playing is music from 1974 to 1986. Yacht Rock. It's the Eagles. It's Linda Ronstadt. It's Fleetwood Mac. It's Billy Joel. Okay? That's the Bronze Age of comics. It's come to my like awareness that that's, that's what we're dealing with here. They're, that's what's going on. The, the, the Yacht Rock age and the Bronze Age are the same age. One's in music. One's in comics. But... You know, like we said with the Beatles and the Rolling Stone at the top of the show, everybody's competing. You know, Michael Jackson and Prince were vying for most important guy in the 80s, in the middle of the 80s. You had, uh, you know, you had Billy Joel and Elton John. You know, who's who's the true piano man? You know, is it Billy? Is it Elton? They were both selling a lot of, lot of records, both burning up the charts. Competition drives everybody. And George and John were driven by each other. Now, I'll tell you, again, as I've referenced these magazines, there was an entire interview with John Perez. John Byrne. John Perez. That'd solve all the problems, right? John Byrne. And there are photos of John Byrne in this. And he's making these crazy faces. And you're drawn to them to see what the caption is. And he has his hands out in front of his face. And he's making this insane look. And his mouth is open yelling, this, this picture of John Byrne. And underneath it, it says John Byrne reenacting how a George Perez character talks. And in the interview, John says, oh, George, everyone overreacts. Everybody, you know, people don't just talk. They over-emote and they, you know, swing their hands and scream at each other. And I'm like, wow, George is in John's head. They're, they're very much aware of each other. How could they not have been? Project Pegasus, Marvel 2 and 1, Fantastic Four, Avengers. These guys shared entire storylines with each other. They pinch hit it for each other. Three on, three off, three on, three off. John had the X-Men ace in his hole. George did a 48-page annual that is most everyone's favorite standalone X-Men story. And, uh, you know, they definitely dabbled in each other's backyards. And it was a phenomenal, phenomenal competition to watch. But once George gets to D.C., and I think he goes to D.C. because he's fed up. You know, he says he had a falling out with Jim Shooter, but I think George, as I got to know him, which I would get to know him, and the way I got to know him was George loved Southern California. He loved coming to comic stores out here. He loved coming to conventions out here. 
the Anaheim, the, the, the Disneyland Hotel down in my backyard, the Disneyland Hotel would host uh, conventions all the time. A popular chain was called the Creation Cons. The Creation Cons would have George Perez at almost every single one of their South Southland appearances. He was always a great guest and George would talk and he would talk to you if you were a teenager, 20 years old, 30 years old. I would stand to the side of his table, ask to, to watch him draw. And he was always very sweet and very kind. And if you look in Teen Titans 50, where Donna Troy gets married, my name is in the guest book. Rob Liefeld's name is in the guest book of the people who attended the fictional, you know, Wonder Girls marriage. This, this is because George and I started this back and forth. He even called me. He started calling me. He saw, I think, that I was trying to break into the business as a young teenager. He wanted to foster that positive energy. He always allowed me to sit next to him, pull up a chair, watch him draw. Wherever he was, I was, my parents were either driving me to drop me off for the afternoon at the comic store that he was signing at all day, or I was driving myself once I got my license to whatever convention he was at. But George would tell anybody who listened what was going on. He had no filter. It's the best part about George. And he would talk about, you know, his competition. And he'd always tell you how well the sales of New Titans were doing. They're the number one book. This is DC's biggest hit in two decades. Very proud man, justifiably. He always brought the work to back up uh, his his claims. He he w it was very important for him that that his work be well received and that he w he was received as at the top of his game. I don't know as much about John Byrne because John Byrne did not do any Southern California appearances. Uh, if he did one, I would have been there. He appeared at one San Diego con early, early, early in my collecting, as I've chronicled in one of the earlier podcasts at a table with all the X-Men artists, like, like, like 1983. And I never saw him again at stores or local shows, smaller shows. He was only at the big, big shows. But George Perez goes on to do the Titans. And like I said, John Burns talking about George, and George is talking about John at conventions and the competition. And he'd, they both always had their eye on each other. Much the same way Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were back and forth, and then Michael Jordan had his eye on everybody. And I think both men were very motivated by slights. If anyone thought they couldn't do something or that they were slipping, they were immediate to react and we would benefit because it would be an increase in their work. George went on an incredible run. I mean, did he do 50 issues of the Titans? Just shy of it. It's an enormous amount of work. That became his benchmark. The Titans with uh, transforming Dick Grayson into Nightwing, the introduction of Jericho, uh, Deathstroke, The Hive, Trigon. He really, that Titans pillar that he put up is still holding uh, uh, an entire section, an entire wing of the company up today. Imagine a DC Comics that wasn't fueled by, by Batman at all. At all. Batman was not even remotely a top seller. It was all about George and what he was doing on the Titans. Ironically, the one time these guys worked together in the Bronze Age, well, they, in 1986, George would ink John Byrne on a Action Comics uh, Superman Wonder Woman story. Actually, he drew all the Wonder Womans, pencil and ink the Wonder Womans on the page, and then he inked the Supermans 
that John Byrne penciled. It was cool. Prior to that, in this X-Men Annual 3 that I keep mentioning that George Perez did, there's one, it's, it's inked by Terry Austin, who says it was the only interior job he ever inked over George. And it makes you wonder, and this is how I'm going to close this rivalry out, is uh, they're inkers. I think George would have taken the crown if uh, he had had better inkers. And, and ironically, I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that in a minute, but the, the funny, funny, funny part is that in this X-Men annual, which is inked by Terry Austin and is one of the best jobs George has ever done, Terry inks with uh, crow coil pens, uh, sharp edges, not a brush inker, and George wasn't a brush inker. When he inked his, his own work, he would use technical pens and markers, and he showed me exactly what he used back in the day, and I went out and bought those and tried to emulate that, that work that he did. When he did that, uh, when Terry Austin inked over George, it was like the perfect mesh, exactly how you'd see John and Terry Austin were the perfect mesh. My former uh, image partner and fellow image founder, Jim Valentino, once told me, he goes, you know... You really just like Terry Austin. Have you ever figured that out? He's the guy that unites everything. It's just Terry. Ha ha ha. He'd laugh. Art Adams, John Byrne, Marshall Rogers, George Perez. What's the thing that unites all these guys? It's Terry Austin. You're a Terry Austin fan more than you're any of these guys. There's There may be some truth to that. But in this X-Men annual, there's one page that suddenly you go, that doesn't look like Terry Austin inked it at all. It's not hard-edged. It, it clearly isn't inked with a pen. It's more brush. And it is a fantastic page. Colossus and Wolverine are flying on on a dragon. Uh, Colossus is on a dragon. Wolverine is down below battling the uh, kind of barbarian horde on this alien world. And it turns out that that page was inked by George by John bon, John Byrne. John Byrne inked George Perez only once in the pages of X Men. And according to Terry Austin, he was at a convention. He had the pages and he felt that John was so synonymous with the X-Men that it would be great if John was included in this one job even for one page and he offered the page to John Byrne and John Byrne said I'd love to ink this John Byrne had his work with him, his brushes and he delivers the page to Terry Austin the next day, walks down and says here it is Terry, and Terry's like oh my gosh and Terry mailed it in with his stuff, John is uncredited, I have spent my professional career seeing if anybody owns that page but especially uh, Marvel did these phone books, black and white editions, called Essentials, their essential line. And it's very clear, black and white, you know, very clear that there's an abrupt, like, you know, hit the brakes. This isn't this slick pen work, uh, this, this, this slick sheen polish. It's now this more crafty brushwork. And it is one of the greats of all time, inking one of the greats of all time. And that is where they would meet only once in 1979 until George would do this when they're at DC in 1986. I would pick up George Perez at one of the last Disneyland Hotel shows that he would do. My friend Hank Canals, who is now a vice president at DC Comics, he can verify all this. We pick George Perez up at the John Wayne Airport and we drive him back to the Anaheim Hotel. George had lost like, I want to say 50 pounds. He was in this svelte three-piece suit wearing sunglasses. He was just feeling it. He was feeling his handsomeness. He was like, oh, good to see you, boys. Good to see you. Oh, thanks for picking me up. We drove him, parked, walked him up to his room. He invited us in. We then waited for a while to come back, and we drove George to 
a Mexican restaurant where we had dinner with him that night. He actually gave me a couple pages of Wonder Woman that he was doing. So this is Post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is this giant 12-issue maxi-series that George did. But again, another giant pillar that he would do uh, after his Titans run that would transform DC Comics and is literally seen as the biggest crossover event in the comic book world ever. It, it, it took all of DC's realities and continuities and put them all at risk under the consequence of this one event and then it reshaped the DC universe on the other end and George drew every page and uh, George gave me some pages of Wonder Woman to go get copies so that he could display them on his table the next day we picked him up on a Friday for the show on Saturday and Sunday but during this time I had never heard of the clause most favored nations but on the drive from John Wayne he said oh boys you have to understand my new contract I have favored nations George always spoke in the most buoyant happy tones and I have favored nations I am by far the best paid artist in comics at DC Comics if anyone else comes in no matter who it is if 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 they are paid higher than me I get one dollar more if they negotiate for one for, for, for a higher page rate I am paid one dollar more you can't get paid better than me at DC now George would tell anybody and everybody who wanted to hear that I think he said it in interviews and he deserved it but don't tell me that competition didn't matter to this guy it did he wanted to be seen as the very best the Michael Jordan the Magic Johnson the Larry Bird of their respective ages and uh, George wanted to dunk on everybody with this contract and he would tell anybody and everybody and again this is 1985 that he is telling me this 1985 end of 85 early 86 and I was just so tickled I had never heard about contracts and clauses but he's telling this 17 year old kid all about it and Hank who was basically my my same age and we were always so Hank and I have talked in recent years how how he looked so different from the t-shirt and jeans guy to the three-piece suit guy with the with the Ray-Ban shades on uh, George, George was dapper as as you could possibly imagine and you know what had happened is John Byrne was coming to do Superman as I said and relaunch Superman at number one changes origin drastically changed the way Lex Luthor was depicted and Lex Luthor suddenly became the kingpin of Frank Miller's Daredevil run again these guys would all influence each other he was just a thinner version but now this no more techno suit no more jetpack Lex Luthor through the 70s purple and green always flying around with the jetpacks ray guns blasters eventually kind of this giant exoskeleton armor no 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 he is this now this uh, basically giant uh, billionaire menace uh, black suits controlling organized crime technology manipulating everyone with his money and power and tormenting Superman and John Byrne radically changed Superman it got the cover of Time magazine it got him sitting down with Katie Couric on the Today Show and he definitely grabbed the headlines and George at this same show out at the Mexican restaurant with Hank and myself says to me well you know my next move is Wonder Woman and that's when he gave me these pages to go get Xeroxes of you're the first to see them I'm sharing these with you now he goes you know with Frank Miller doing Batman and John Byrne doing Superman I can't be left behind he said so I told DC I need you know the other member of the big three I need Wonder Woman and so they gave me Wonder Woman so I 
I, I, I couldn't afford to not be in the conversation with doing one of DC's biggest characters when John's doing Superman and Frank Miller's doing Batman. And again, speaks directly to the, com the competitive natures of how these guys rolled. Who was the winner? Who was the benefactor in all this? We were. Wonder Woman was never better. George poured everything he had into that book for the first two years. When you see the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman movies, they are reflective of what George did. Uh, George did a great version of Cheetah, which Kristen Wiig is playing in the new one, the new movie. And you can count on the fact Maxwell Lord, that's all George's era. Again, the depiction of the Amazons with their with their specific armor, kind of Asgardian, as making them more Asgardian looking, which is code word for, you know, Jack Kirby. That's all George. He changed the way Wonder Woman was perceived. Wonder Woman launched giant sales, giant fanfare. Not as big as Superman, but it didn't matter. George was in the conversation. George wasn't being left behind by design. He never took his career for granted, neither did John Byrne. These guys are canny operators. And who would they influence? They would influence little Todd, little Rob, little Jim, and everybody that followed. Because we grew up influenced by Frank and George and John and Walt. And like I said, rivalries are great. We get the best out of the rivalry. The winner is always the fan. When LeBron shifts narratives, goes to Miami, goes back to Cleveland, you know, when when uh, Tracy McGrady leaves Toronto and goes to Orlando, whenever these big shifts happen, when Shaq goes to Miami, seismic shifts that, you know, change the balance. I mean, look, look at Kevin Durant. Leaves Oklahoma City, goes to the Warriors, rolls off a bunch of rings. Now he'll re he'll rise again in, 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 uh, in New Jersey. I mean, it's exciting. Rivalries are what matter, and this was the greatest rivalry of the age. X-Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Titans, Justice League, Wonder Woman, Superman, it never ends. These guys kept this rivalry up for a good 20-something years, and then they both eventually kind of, uh, George has all but retired, did, did a retirement tour last year, you know, he in the 90s, his, he did three issues of Infinity Gauntlet before leaving that and spent most of the 90s kind of just doing small projects, nothing concerted. He came back roaring in the 90s on a relaunch of the Avengers, which was beloved because he had been gone so long and he came back with a head of steam, with all new page designs, crammed with detail, terrific illustrations of these amazingly attractive figures, now by a guy who is beyond veteran in his expertise so George uh, George rang the bell now as for me who do I prefer um, if you take Uncanny X-Men out of the mix it's George what George lost when he went to DC he lost Joe Rubenstein Bob Layton Dan Green Terry Austin he lost Bob Wyacek some of the best inkers in the business worked for Marvel Klaus Janssen all of them ink George all of them polished him he benefited from every brushstroke, every crow quill, every pen tip. When he went to DC, Dick Giordano was really the only inker uh, who could keep up with him. And Dick Giordano was an executive at the company and couldn't ink everything that George did. So George was inked by a sweet man named Romeo Tunhall. And George would tell you if at these 
store appearances, convention appearances. Oh, I'm trying to work with Romeo and get him to give me a harder line. He uses a brush. You know, I, I, I George started inking some faces, some figures in certain issues. When George would ink himself, as he increasingly did, especially on covers and assorted interiors, he used pens and his inks were even more detailed than anything. He never let one line, you know, escape him. He detailed everything up. But when he went to D.C., he lost the best inkers in the business who all worked at Marvel. And it was, again, Dan Green, Terry Austin, Bob Layton, Joe Rubenstein, Bob Wyatchik, Bob McCloud. I mean, these guys were fantastic. These are the guys who were inking. Gene Day. Oh, I forgot Gene Day. Amazing inkers. And when he crossed the street, what was waiting for him was Frank McLaughlin, who had inked a bunch of Silver Age guys. And Romeo Tonhall, who had a soft brush touch, had Joe Rubenstein, Bob Layton, Gene Day ink the Titans. I, I probably give the mantle and the edge to George, but you can't escape those John Byrne, Terry Austin, Uncanny X-Men issues. And in years, the last several years, I am an avid collector of those pages of original art. And an original page of John Byrne and Terry Austin from X-Men can go for as high as $75,000. Yes, I said $75,000. Issues of the Teen Titans by George and Romeo, you can buy for $1,200,000. It shouldn't determine someone's impact. I'm just telling you, when I talk of the John Byrne X-Men, the Terry Austin John Byrne X-Men run, it's it's the stuff of legends. It's the biggest rel, the biggest bell that could have been run during that time. But that doesn't take away from how special George was and how special his rivalry with John was. It was phenomenal. It drove an entire age of comics. An entire age of readers like myself were so blessed by their efforts. And in my case, and my peers, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, Todd McFarlane, it drove us, Jim Valentino, it drove us to make comics. So... You guys, that is the greatest rivalry of my lifetime. Now, we didn't have time to visit the rivalries that it would enhance. But again, we're building the journey here brick by brick, man. We're, we're laying down the road. And uh, so, so that when we, you know, travel it in its entirety, it'll be the smoothest ride. So you guys, the r greatest rivalry in comics. Fantastic Four. Project Pegasus. Avengers. This is the stuff they shared. Uncanny X-Men, Fantastic Four, Alpha Flight for John, which I didn't touch here. I don't think it's as good as Fantastic Four and Uncanny X-Men. Titans, Justice League, Avengers for George. Hundreds of pages, thousands of pages, hundreds of issues, and the best time I ever had in comics. These two guys, John Byrne, George Perez. Love them both. Uh, collect all the different editions. All Marvel or DC has to do is repackage them, and they have my money time and again. But thank you for spending time with me again on Observations. We're going to continue to plow through these great comics, discuss them, highlight them. And uh, you can catch me on Instagram at, at Rob Liefeld and at Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I'm all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Reach, me, reach out to me on social media. I'll definitely respond to you. We'll hang out. We'll talk. Um, I'm, I'm always up for discussing my favorite subject, which is comic books. Uh, look for the blue check. That means it's me. There are imitators. 
if it doesn't have the blue check, it's not really me. Thank you for another great adventure with Rob Observations. We will do this again next week. Uh, look forward to my 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 next episode. Has a guest joining me, and we're gonna um, continue to discuss about these le- discuss legendary runs of comic books. So so make up make sure you hook up and look for the next episode. This is episode five of Rob Observations. It has been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.